Welcome back to Hot Off The Pod 2.0, baby. We are starting off a new season this summer and we're really excited. We have a new team. An amazing team. Yes. Incredible team. New vibe. A new logo. Hello. And it's pretty sexy. It is sexy. We're really excited. Should we start? I guess so. Let's introduce our new team. I'm Emily. I'm a little new. I produced last year. I'm very excited to host this year. You got to listen to her voice one, one episode time. last one year. Time. Yes. Yeah. And it was amazing. Oh my god. I'm the old I'm the old one. <laughs> Ew. The old veteran. It's fine. Since when does 21 feel old? Not to me. <laughs> And we also have two new amazing producers working on the podcast, Tony and Sid. Say hi. Hello. Hi. <laughs> We're all sitting your... around a table right now, so I, we can see them, but you can't. I'm making as direct eye contact with Emily as I possibly can. So am I. I, I can't <laughs> you... pick who to make eye contact. <laughs> you gotta way, flip between us. The way that both of you are like leaning into the mic so directly when you speak Amazing. I feel like it adds something. Tony, are we about to kiss right now? I guess so. <laughs> anyway, so they're new to the team. We're, we're working on shit this summer. Indeed. And part of that is we wanted to just create this episode to talk about some things that have been going on, things on our brain, introduce the new folks. Yeah, we think the best way to get to know people is to get to know what they're thinking about. And their opinions. So, though we are so biased, we have so we many opinions. Are the opinion editors, <laughs> former opinion editor, former opinion editor. Tony is also face. my beautiful co-opinion editor. Oh yes, I do everything Emily does not want to do. This is <laughs> that is that's yeah. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's time to pass on the baton. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes, that yes, I yes, did yes, that yes. to you last year. So, and I loved it. It's your turn yeah. to like pass shit on now. <laughs> We're going to be doing a different format today. We each have scoured the interwebs to find a article about a topic that we think is interesting. We have not disclosed our picks to one another. So we're just going to introduce what each of us has brought to the table and get into some opinions. Have a little conversation. Yeah. But with microphones on, recording what we're saying. No big. Yeah. Totally not nervous. We're fine. (laughs) Sweet. So who's going first? You're looking at me like I'm going to go first. You should go first. I can go first. I'm going to be upfront and honest. I tried so hard to find a different topic to talk about today, and I couldn't because nothing felt as important to me. And I didn't want to talk about it because I think it borders on a rant for me. We love rants. I know, and I know you guys will just support my rants and everything I do, but I didn't want to like bring that energy today. <laughs> I didn't want that to be the start of this podcast. It is. But I did some soul searching, and I did some data research, which is pretty sexy of me, I think. So yeah, we're going to do it anyways, and it's going to be great. A little preface for Pride Month this last month. Just to note, this is your second preface. I have a lot of prefaces. <laughs> this topic needs a lot of prefaces, okay. I think. Um, so for Pride Month this past month, in June, I made an effort to kind of read queer stories. Because I think it was something I didn't get a lot of growing up, for one reason or another. And I think for me, that was crazy because I've always been, like, the book person. You know, it's always been like, Emily knows in a book, head somewhere else. We do be the English majors here. <laughs> I, one of my two majors is English, and it makes sense. And so for, for me not to have queer stories and queer characters, 
made me feel like that wasn't something that I could do in real life, I think a little bit. You know, like, I feel like all of the characters and the stories I loved, those were what I mirrored in my real life. And so if I didn't have that, it was like, that's not, that's not real. <laughs> Which is insane. <laughs> like, that's crazy. And so one of the books that I read during Pride Month was one that I read in high school. I reread it. Um, it's called Red Azalea. It's amazing. It's about this, it's a memoir. It's about this girl in communist China who goes and works on a farm and she falls in love with a woman, and it's amazing, and it's great. And we read the first half of it in high school. We didn't read the second half. We read the first half of Red Azalea Oh, in high no, school. this seems pointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I had a lot of things I've been thinking about. My, I have little notes here, and I titled it The Red Azalea Crisis, because I feel like that's what I've been going through. This was one of maybe two books in four years that I read that was openly and purposefully about a gay relationship. And only half of it was required reading. <laughs> so it was like one and a half books. And I feel like I'm not alone in that. No, of course not. I mean, I went to private school. <laughs> <laughs> I went to woke private school, reportedly woke private right. school. Yeah. And we had no queer stories right. in high school. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that was even something that was on the radar. Mm. I went to public school and I live in a very liberal area and we all pride ourselves on being very progressive and woke, especially like when it comes to diversity issues. But I feel like for my school, diversity stopped when it came to ethnicity or race. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to talking about different identities, not just sort of like sexuality, but sort of just anything outside of race, we didn't talk about it. Totally. It was never taught. It was never learned about. It was never spoken about. And so I, I'm sort of racking my brain. I can't yeah. even think of any queer stories yeah. that I was, I had even heard about, let alone like engaged with in class. I think too, if there was a book that was centered on a queer experience, I don't think that it was highlighted. Right. Like I can't remember yeah. any books that were. So if there were some, yeah. It was definitely not discussed. I went through the AP Literature recommended book list. Oh, this will be good. And it's nine pages long. So <laughs> understandably, I did not go through every single title. In general, it's slim pickings. And I feel like in high school, the one AP Lit book that we had was like The Color Purple. Like that's a queer story and it's a beautiful queer story. And like, that's great. But that was it, you know? Like, that was where it ended. Like, Red Azalea is not even on the AP Lit recommended book list. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I went to Catholic high school, so mm -hmm. I feel like my experiences were really similar to what you guys have been saying. We absolutely never read a single book yeah. that had any gay subtext. Mm -hmm. I vaguely remember when I was younger, we read a book that had a tiny bit, and my teacher specifically said, well, if you'd like to read it through a homoerotic lens, you can. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Subtext, I think it's important because it doesn't have to be purposeful to be gay and to be valid and to be a queer story. But if it's not purposeful, it's also, you can ignore it. You know, you can erase that narrative. And so if we're not reading it to be about a queer story, it makes me sad a little bit, you know? I'm like, what? Because <laughs> I feel like we had the Iliad, we had Frankenstein, and people were like, well, there are queer readings of this book. You're blowing me away because I'm <laughs> literally remembering during my first week at UCSB, I was taking a class that mm. involved Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And my professor was like, so there's certainly some gay subtext here. Yeah. And I was blown away because when we read it in high school, we never touched that. I had never yeah, even imagined that it could exactly. be there. And she was like, we really need to examine it. It's integral to the book. 
I feel like that's almost like showing up for your first lecture in college and your professor says shit and you're like, oh my God, it's allowed here. <laughs> yeah, that it's was so like, real. Oh my God, we can talk about these yeah. things. I think it's interesting because in high school, we read some stories that kind of borderline yeah. talk about these topics, but they're so scared to even bring up sex. Exactly. They're so scared to bring up certain topics that I think that teachers are kind of sidestep yeah. and avoid mm -hmm. them. And then we lose something because yeah. our identities and our experiences aren't being reflected in the things that we're reading. Yeah, it stunts your education and your ability to like cohesively examine text. Yeah. I felt like after I read that interpretation of Frankenstein, my mind was going like a million miles a minute. And mm -hmm. I wanted to learn like so many more things. Like it made me feel happy and like empowered to be reading a book that way. I also feel like it stops people from being engaged with books so in general. So true. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. like... Let's be honest here. I'm not going to read a book if there's no, like, romance. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. The English major right I'm now. sorry. I was, like, a big YA, like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, lots of those. Yeah. And I, They're like, fun. Yeah. yeah, like, that's what really got me into reading. And obviously, like, my repertoire has expanded since then. But, like, in high school, I don't think I would have gotten into books if that wasn't for, like, that. And yeah. For those parts of stories to be unemphasized, I almost feel like it's stopping kids from like wanting to read because yeah. they're only talking about boring shit. No yeah. one wants to read that when yeah. you're 17. Just adding on to that point you made, Melanie, and what you said earlier, Emily, about interpretation and pulling out something personal, mm -hmm. something I just always come back to is the Harry Potter series, yeah. and there's so many problematic things going on with the author, but a lot of people growing up read it and they pulled out, you know, potentially queer themes or just themes about race that weren't explicitly mentioned. And, you know, there's issues with the author and her own views, but having that in a story is so powerful and you can't ignore them. But if it is so personal to you, like, why aren't we talking about it? It yeah. elevates the experience. It makes you interested in the world. And if you see it sort of like acted out in the like fantasy world, like what you were saying earlier, Emily, you can feel more comfortable expressing it in real life. And I think that is so powerful and something that a lot of people miss, especially in a more academic and personal setting. So, mm, yeah. Emily, I want to ask what your favorite <laughs> Pride Month queer story that you read was? That's a great question. <laughs> Red Azalea is really special to me. Reading it again and reading the full did, thing I again, was going to ask, did you read the first half like, only? I read the whole book and it was like, I feel like a problem I have sometimes with queer fiction especially is that it kind of centers around being fantasy and like there's a space for that and that's great. And But I feel like Red Azalea is so real and it's like this was someone's story and it happened to her and like gay people exist everywhere it's totally it was like totally just like normal for yeah. this story to happen and I was like oh this is great you know <laughs> I don't know it was mm. so special to read again because I was like oh I read this in ninth grade and I didn't know what that meant and now I'm reading it now and I feel like I'm in such a different space and I'm like oh yeah that meant so much to me then and it means so much to me now to read it again. That's actually interesting because I was just thinking of of the queer stories I've heard and read a lot of them are fantasy yeah and now I'm like oh are they saying like it can't exist in like the regular yeah. world and so there's a very interesting mm -hmm. like lens you could take on that and so that I thought that was a really interesting point you brought up. Yeah there's a lot of I read a lot of queer YA which was really fun but a lot of it is like in this kind of dystopian sci-fi mm -hmm. setting which is cool to read about and like really interesting I love that kind of stuff but it's like 
that's not real. And I, I need so desperately, because I just feel like I've never had it, like something that I can be like, that happened to somebody. For Tangible sure. and like yeah, point to it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. This isn't a book, but I love the movie, The Danish Girl. Mm-hmm. Anyone else watch that movie with Eddie Redmayne? Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> well, I'm just an Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> I'm just an Eddie Redmayne stan. Really? Ooh. Well, I, and I thought that The Danish Girl, I mean, it's a movie, obviously, so I think there's a lot of room for different types of portrayal. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting because it, I think it's the story of one of the first people to undergo a sex change operation. In the movie, there's a lot of moments that show Annie Redmayne's character, like, questioning, looking in the mirror, examining his body, like, trying to figure things out. And I feel like that was just, like, a really honest, like, oh, this is probably what people yeah. go through, you know? Like, and it wasn't dusted up. Yeah, it real. wasn't, which I feel like we get so much with movies. Moving on from books, there's yeah. all sorts of places that you yeah. can get some queer stories thrown in. For some reason, there's been more of that for me. Like, I've been able to find that. I don't know why. It just hurts so much that I couldn't get that in books because I loved them so much, you know? That's yeah. And yeah. Mel was highlighting something that's like a huge problem both in Hollywood and in literature mm. where a lot of times the only stories that we're hearing are from white people. And I remember mm. when Eddie Redmayne was in that movie, there was a lot of people saying that they should have cast an actual trans actor. That's such a real issue in Hollywood and in literature. Yeah. I remember when Love, Simon came out, my friends and I all went to see it. And when we left the theater, we were feeling weird. And I I couldn't figure out why it was until one of my friends said something that was like, why is it that it's always just like a perfect white person that gets to have this idyllic suburban lifestyle where it's okay that they're gay and everyone accepts them and there's never a story that has something else. That's always it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, guys. We paused for a quick coffee break, but we're back now. (laughs) Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about before, um, I think something that's really powerful about books is even if the characters are described, you can still sort of interpret them and see them in any sort of way. Imagine yourself in the universe. And something specifically about visual media is that they are specifically casted by whoever's Mm. behind the screen, right? Maybe it's the director, the writer, you know, a producer, but they are choosing somebody in their own eyes to portray that character. And, you know, you can still see it any way you want, but it is so definite. And that's why visual representation is so important versus a book. Obviously, it's great to have diverse characters, but in a sort of sense, you can sort of ignore that and you can see it however you want versus a movie like we were talking about. It is that way and you will see that. Yeah. as long as you watch it. I always used to hate when they'd turn my favorite books into movies because <laughs> when I was reading the books, you would see the characters in your head a certain way. Then you'd watch the movie and you'd see what the casting producer picked for the character. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I'd go back to read the books again, I couldn't envision the original character that I had in my mind the first time I read the book. Mm-hmm. All I would see was the person from the movie and it was so sad. <laughs> Slightly unrelated, but one of the big reasons that pushed me to actually do this issue is we watched Luca last night, and that's a gay movie. That is about a queer story. It is about, a, like, it's about not fitting into society. A gay movie. It is. I will fight anybody on it. It's about, like, not fitting in and finding the people who accept you no mm-hmm. matter what. That's a queer story, you know? And if I had seen that as a kid, I would have combusted on site. You would have been too <laughs> I would have imploded, you know? Like, we're getting somewhere, you know? Like, it's Mm. starting to happen, so, like, I don't want to make this a big, like, this all sucks, and, like, it's never going to change, you know? Like, it's starting to happen. I just, like, I am so ready for subtext to be text. Like, I just need that. And I think so many people 
have needed that for like their entire lives and it's ridiculous that it hasn't happened yet and it's not normal yet so well on that really eloquent point i know thank you we should transition (laughs) to our second article or else i feel we're not gonna get to talk about all the opinions that thank you for indulging me that was very cleansing for me i know thank you (laughs) (laughs) moving on yeah so for listeners and for everyone in general um, I'm Japanese, so growing up, I spent a lot of time in Little Tokyo, in downtown LA, BT-dubs, felt the need to preface, I'm from LA. <laughs> and one of the very perfect and special things that I remember as a child in Little Tokyo was this little mochi ice cream shop called Mikawaya. And I remember every time that my mom and I would go, I would feel so happy, and I would get my little mochi ice cream, and we would mm. walk around the streets. What flavor, though? Oh, well, as a child, I was not a green tea fan. I was strawberry <laughs> for <a> life. <laughs> Okay, fair I enough. I was like Robert seven, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but at least have you changed your mind since then? I'm not really an ice cream girl anymore, to be honest. Wow. I got a plug. I got a plug right now. Um, Fugetsu Do in Little Tokyo, you have to try their red bean. And if you're not really mm. into that kind of flavor, I recommend their strawberry. It's a little strawberry. bit... Still on the yeah. strawberry. Still oh, it's, on it's the good. strawberry. I got to say, they make it fresh. They're amazing. Oh, I definitely mm. recommend but sadly, Mika Waya closed over the pandemic. Oh. Guess how long they had been in business. I don't want to know. 20 plus years. 111 <gasps> years. Wow. Is LA even 111 <laughs> years old? It's clearly it is. Yeah. <laughs> Little Tokyo is a historic district, and it was like the community. It was the place for people to be. I hadn't really realized the full scale of it until I called my uncle the other day. He grew up in Chinatown, and he was telling me about how when he went, he felt like Chinatown was only really three blocks now. Wow. And when he was growing up, he was like, you couldn't escape it. Like, it was everywhere. The same goes for Little Tokyo. It's actually genuinely depressing to be there because you walk through and there's basically, like, two blocks, one of which is, like, a little, like, shopping mall area. There's a giant corporate hotel going through it. And then there's one other block that used to have apartments. Um, But now it's pretty much, like, the lower floor is all businesses and the upper floors are starting to be rented out, too. Wow. I just wonder, like, where people are living because so many people are being displaced. Mm. And the worst part is that as this, like, ice cream place closed down, everyone was like, well, who's going to take its place? Obviously, we're all hoping for it to be an Asian-American vendor, somebody who's from the Japanese community, someone who's part of us who, like, gets the struggle. At the least. At the very minimum. And you will be extremely, extremely pleased to know (laughs) that it is being taken over by the brand Mogu Yobi, which does sound Japanese, right? It does sound Maybe. Okay, wait for it. Yeah, give it to Not me. at all. Oh, no. So it is run by a woman named Julie Pinzer, mm. who is a white woman who takes a lot of inspiration from Asian culture. Ooh. She says that the name for her shop, which is like a clothing store, by the way, it's like a oh. fun, bubbly, bright color, t-shirts, backpacks kind of vibe. She says that she got a lot of inspo from her time in Asia and that all of her brand is directly inspired by Asian people and culture. Mm. She is, Mm. yeah, that's her vibe. My eyebrows just shot to the roof. For those of you, since you can't see me. (laughs) And it's just so depressing to think about how we are witnessing gentrification in action. Mm. If you guys want to sign a petition, there's one on change.org started by J-Town Action and Solidarity that says Moku Yobi must go. But it only has about 2,000 supporters right now. Yeah. Gentrification, hot or not. (laughs) (laughs) Not. 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 I also feel like 
you said this place closed during the pandemic. Yeah. I feel like the pandemic is surely speeding this process along. Oh, mm. yeah. Um, actually, so in the comments of the the petition I was reading, and there are people sharing their personal stories about their own businesses in Little Tokyo closing. And someone said that upwards of like 10 businesses that were owned by Japanese people who have been in that area for like 50 plus years have all been the ones to close. And it's only these really big powerhouse, like almost corporation adjacent businesses that are taking their place. And we're like, we're losing little Tokyo. Like there is no mistake. Like this is a historic district that is a landmark and is important to Asian people in America. And like, we are watching it disintegrate before our eyes. And it's so depressing to think about. Yeah. And it's not just in LA. I mean, San Francisco, New York, every major city is going through this process. I know that my family's from New York. Mm -hmm. And when my parents lived there in the 80s and 90s, you know, the meatpacking district was not a place you would walk at night, especially. You Mm -hmm. would not go there. You would not walk by yourself. But we went back to New York recently. And it just so happened that the store we were looking for was in the meatpacking district. And my parents were like, we're not going there. We were like starting to walk that direction. They're like, no, we have to turn around. We can't go there. And like, we're looking at the streets, like there's shops, there's people walking up and down the streets. It's like, what are you talking about? This looks nice. Like we, we you know, it's fine here. And it's just like, I think for them, like, you know, going having that time between it, not getting to see the process over time and just seeing the start and the end makes gentrification feel really real and like, Mm. you know. Definitely in terms of Little Tokyo, those are like local businesses that are closing. Even though where people used to live, they're now just businesses. Oh yeah. That's insane. It's crazy to me because when I was little, we would go to the grocery stores and we would would buy groceries there. Mm. And now when I go in, I'll see like a few Asian elders getting groceries that still live in the area. Mm. But for the most part, it's either people on their way to work in downtown or it's young, hip kids who want to like get in on the scene. I think it's super interesting that it's a clothing company too. Because I know, Sid, you wrote an article about this for us already, about Asian fetishization. Like, especially in clothes, you know, it's such a thing where white companies and white people Mm -hmm. in general think they can just kind of be like, oh yeah, it's Asian inspired, you know, like, oh, this Like, it's so ironic that that's literally what's taking over. No, it's awful. It's, like, genuinely perverted. Like, it makes Mm -hmm. me deeply angry. And also, I just wanted to bring back to what Mel was saying earlier. It's so interesting that you bring up New York because I was recently reading an article that says that NYU and Columbia are the biggest um, gentrifiers in all of New York Mm -hmm. City. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, we need to be so conscious about where we're choosing to go to college, for grad school, Mm -hmm. for everything, because so many of these big universities, while they're offering us a great education, are either complicit in or they are like the direct actors of pushing people out of the places that they're in. Literally, the the apartments that my parents and I lived in when we were living there Mm -hmm. were rent controlled, so Mm. slightly subsidized, Mm -hmm. and now are NYU dorms. And and I think they're also like the biggest landlords in New York or something like that. I mean, even to bring it back home, UCSB is not... Uh, not guilty oh yeah like he's not innocent at all I mean I used to I worked at the elementary school that's like it's a five minute bike from my house it was eye-opening because I was like right families live here and they're low income they're Hispanic and Latino for the most part and they depend on this these elementary schools these resources and we're for the most part partying on Friday and Saturday night and causing a ruckus which is you know it's college we're here to have go have your fun but, like, I see these kids on Monday, you know? <laughs> and they live a block down from me. And that, I don't know, that's crazy to me. I think for me, sort of losing these historic cultural places, mm. I live up in the Bay Area, so I was 
I really like San Francisco was super accessible. Yeah. And for me as a Chinese adoptee, my parents are white and I never really had that connection. Like I know for Sid, you had that through your mom and your mom's side of the family. And I never really had that. And so going to these places like Chinatown or Little Tokyo in SF, it was sort of weird. It was sort of an out of body experience. I did yeah. definitely feel like a tourist in my own cultural background, mm -hmm. but also it was my only connection to my heritage. And it's so interesting for me to see that because I already struggle with me sort of feeling like I'm losing that side of myself and seeing it tangibly like mm. fade away and be replaced by I, I don't even want to say something new it's just changing right and it's sort of scary and it's like am I losing this forever like are we as a country losing this forever and then again as we were saying like for the indigenous people in Santa Barbara you know yeah. they're watching their native land yeah. you know everything that like really tie them back to the space and just land in general is so inherently tied to identity yeah. and that is just so poignant and really honestly just sad to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's precious. Land is precious because we can so visibly understand the like limited amount. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at maps, we understand that there's only so much space. You can quantify land. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, and especially you know, valuable land on the ocean and things like that. Like there's only so much of that and, and people fight <laughs> over it obviously and um yeah. Yeah, I almost find it offensive sometimes when my UCSB professors start class by acknowledging that we're on native land. It's like, yeah, yeah we yeah. are. I'm glad we're talking about it. But like, what's being done about that? Yeah. Very little. They're like, let's acknowledge it. And then they go into whatever. Yeah, you know, and like, UCSB no is like mm -hmm. pretty guilty of a lot of things when right. it comes to stealing land. I know that we are deeply involved in the colonization of Mauna Kea mm -hmm. because we are deeply involved in putting the we telescope up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Heavily funded. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that on this podcast a little bit, but Indeed. it would be good to check in and see. I, I, I don't know if they've... I'm not... I don't know. I don't know, and I don't know enough to say more, but... Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're still heavily involved. It's in the works. <laughs> yeah. You know, we that have not of... pulled out. Speaking of Hawaii, actually, that relates perfectly to my topic. Not that we planned it or anything, but the topic that I wanted to talk about was tourism because I'm a teacher and a lot of my students were like, Ms. Tony, I'm going to be missing class for the Ms. next Tony. month. Ms. <laughs> Tony! <laughs> Sorry. It's really cute. It's really cute. You couldn't just gloss over that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like... They're all like, Miss Tony, I have something to tell you. And then they're like, my family's going to Hawaii for four months. I don't know. I've just thought a lot about the tourism industry. And I go keep going back and forth on it, especially in Hawaii. You know, we all want to think of like tropical vacation. You escape to Hawaii, you go to Cancun. But we always sort of forget about the native population, just the citizens, what it means truly for the people who live there. And especially in Hawaii, there's this recent news article that I found from earlier this month, basically saying that to support the tourism industry, the Hawaii Tourism Authority, they are going to be pulling money out of the COVID relief fund. Oh, And yeah. Hawaii is already wow. struggling with COVID. During like the height of the pandemic, basically they had like four hospital beds between all of the islands. Yeah. Wow. You know, they were prioritizing, you know, tourists who got COVID. And pretty much, I, I think Sid mentioned this earlier, the really only help that they were getting was within their own communities. The neighbors were banding together, staying safe, trying to keep people out. And now because their economy relies so heavily on tourism, they're really just bringing people back. And they are really just sort of sacrificing their own safety to bring, 
you know, mainlanders back into the area. And there's this just very interesting dynamic between the people who live there and sort of other people's selfish desires. I feel like nothing so concretely depicts that as them literally taking money directly from the COVID That's relief crazy. fund and putting it into tourism. I thought I read it wrong. I genuinely yeah. thought I read it wrong and I was like, wait, and I had to read I it. I thought I heard time. you wrong. Yeah. I was like, what? And don't you know, like, everyone in your life is going to Hawaii right now? Like, don't you feel oh, like yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Someone I know was like, oh, yeah, Hawaii just opened back up, so I'm going to get a rapid test, I think. And I was oh. like, what? You're going to go to Hawaii right now? Like, that's insane to me. Dude, it's crazy. I was at an urgent care because... Epic student healthcare moment. Epic. Epic. And I looked at the top of my form and they had three options for COVID testing. It was COVID mm. testing for personal reasons, COVID testing for work, and then specifically COVID testing to go to Hawaii. Like, it, it didn't like say like, specified yeah, Hawaii. it oh, didn't say COVID testing for traveling. It said for Hawaii oh, specifically. Well, I feel yeah. like it's, it's makes sense to me because people are still really hesitant to, I think, travel outside the U.S., mm. but they feel like, you know, pandemic's almost over. It's time to travel. We want to go to vacation for the summer. Where are we going to go where mm. we're still in the country, but we can go to a tropical place and lay on yeah. the beach for a week? And I feel like everyone's answer is Hawaii. Yeah. We actually looked into going to Hawaii. Can't, can't lie. We looked into going to Hawaii this summer, my family, but... I think what we've heard is that they're jacking the prices up too to try and like make up for all the money that they lost from people not traveling there over the past year. And so literally it's become so inaccessible to even go visit and hike and, and see the islands if you've never been before because getting a hotel there for one night in like a Marriott is like too grand. It's insane. It's an interesting balance because I feel like there is a large portion of Hawaiian business that does depend on tourism. And I'm sure a lot of those include local businesses. Oh, I think it's like 90%. I, yeah. yeah. And, and that so, in itself is the problem. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. I, it's yeah. so inextricably linked with the island. Exactly. To me, it doesn't correlate with the way they've been able to handle COVID. Maybe it's just me, but like lives don't equate opening a tourism industry no, back up. Sure. I completely agree. And something also, I am not quite well versed in the, the local yeah. sort of legislature enough to speak super in depth about this, but there were a lot of proposed taxes that would increase the local citizens' taxes wow. to, like, they have to pay taxes for hotels, pretty much. And it's, like, 15%, and there was wow. a proposed 3% increase, so they'd be paying, like, 18% taxes mm just to like fund hotels in the area in preparation for the new tourist season. And as Melanie said, they're already going to try and increase rates That's for crazy. tourists coming in. And even though I, I don't think it's enough to sort of dissuade people from coming, but it does further expand sort of like the elitism right. of the tourist industry. Yeah. I mean, what is the vaccine distribution been like? Do you know? Like, do they have? I don't in think Hawaii? they were. Yeah, I mean, doing very I have well. a we have a family friend who lives in Hawaii, and I could be totally wrong about this, so please fact check <laughs> me. But it sounded like from what he we talked to him a few weeks ago, and it sounded like they were distributing vaccines on one island. Yeah, wow. and so it was like if you weren't, and it was probably the main. It's the island, main. Yeah, and so if you couldn't get there, it's like there's no accessibility. 
Mm-hmm. And Which just is in, not great. <laughs> yeah, just in general with infrastructure, same with their hospitals mm-hmm. and stuff. It's like just the main island. It's like mostly where the tourists are. Yeah. And if you're on the other ones, you don't really get vaccines. You don't have access mm-hmm. to like good healthcare. Again, you know, yeah. do your own research. Yeah. But also in general, more rural areas, even in the continental U.S., it's yeah. very similar to that. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. No. So anyone going on vacation this summer? <laughs> nope. This is my vacation. Yeah. I pay rent. Yeah. <laughs> we pay lots of money yeah. per month. Isla Vista? That sounds like a travel vacation. I know. Every time I, I tra- like go to plan a vacation, I'm like, I want to be somewhere by the beach. I want to yeah. be in a nice place with like n- like room. And I'm like, what am I doing? I live in that place that I'm looking to tr- visit. And as we said, a lot of people are hesitant about traveling outside of the United States. And Santa Barbara, actually, itself is a well-known tourist Mm -hmm. area. And there's a lot of sort of discourse about what that means for the local population, like what that means for the service industry here and what it means for COVID as well. I know during the pandemic, we had Mm -hmm. a very large COVID spike. And now sort of as people try and you know, do more things, try to get out of the house. They're, you know, considering coming here because it's gorgeous. Yeah. But you also have to sort of consider what that means for our safety, for their safety, and also sort of just the people who do work in the service industry here's safety mm-hmm. yeah. and sort of like the racial dynamics of that as well because it is mostly like rich, wealthy, yeah. white people coming from California down to this area. And a lot of the people who work in the service industry are people of color who mm-hmm. need the money. Yeah. And so it's this very sort of biased and potentially like dangerous for their health and their safety. And just in general, tourism <laughs> is very like I'm not yeah. making it specifically about here. And it's so set in ways and we're trying to make it different. But it's just very interesting to consider. It's such a hard debate because on the one hand, you know, pe- the people here and in Hawaii depend on tourist income, tourists paying money yeah. for things mm-hmm. to make, get their income. And obviously that's so important right now as we're recovering from a huge economic crisis that has resulted from COVID. Um, but also, you know, at what cost? Like their health is is important too. And, mm-hmm. and I think that it's almost like their health doesn't get prioritized because they have to, you know, make money for their families in some way. And and I think that, you know, obviously this points to a larger debate about social inequality, yeah. which, yeah. and um, we don't want to get into that. <laughs> it's definitely not a yeah. very nuanced thing. Like, I feel like you could just sort of argue everything's, like, based in, like, some sort of race or class dispute, but, and I don't think we have the time to go so, <laughs> like, in-depth, but I thought I would bring that up, and I thought it carried well into the other topics we've talked about today. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely did see some Twitter discourse about it. Like, I really? saw... I saw this, uh, a, a tweet blew up, or one that I saw was like, if Hawaiians are telling you not to come to Hawaii, don't come to Hawaii. Oh, yeah, and course. I was like, this seems like a simple rule. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like that's, and yet clearly it's, there's more than that. Yeah. No, but, that's crazy. Yeah. Should we move to our fourth topic? Let's do it, Mel. Let's do it. Okay. Melanie, Melanie, Melanie. You know I'm about to pull a Uno reverse card on y'all. <laughs> like, there's been a lot of heavy discourse, and I'm about to switch to the vibe. We saved some. Oh, fun switch stuff for last. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Best for last, as someone would say. Mel. Oh, oldest last. Mm, no one would say that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So what I have come today to discuss the topic <laughs> on the table. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at it. Anyone catch my Hamilton reference? <laughs> no. <laughs> but 
now I do. He right. has a lot of thoughts about Hamilton. I do. I don't sing it in the house because I'm afraid mm. of being judged. A topic, a topic for another time, I think. Mm. I have okay. so many thoughts about Hamilton. Okay, we okay. We need to make that a thing. Okay. Noted. Um, so... The article that I was reading that I thought would be interesting to talk about today (laughs) is an article from the New York Times that proposed that Gen Z, a.k.a. all of us, um, is... (laughs) (laughs) Why did that get you? We're keeping it in. (laughs) Absolutely. So it proposed that Gen Z wants to put an end to email. Mm. And it mostly focused on putting an end to email in the workplace. But I think it's an interesting debate because, you know, obviously, like, we have social media now. We have texting. We have FaceTime. We have all these different new ways we can communicate with each other. And email was, like, the OG and used a little bit less. But is it ready to be put to death? I mean... (laughs) I hate emails. (laughs) I hate them. I... (laughs) Sorry, I got real up and close she to got, the mic She for leaned that. in. I have strong... I'm so glad you brought this one. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm working a couple places this summer, and all of them have different ways that they communicate with each other. Some of it's through their own email, like they gave me a new email address. Some of them use Microsoft Teams. Some of them use Slack. Like, there's thousands of different ways that I think workplaces use to communicate. Email is probably my least favorite. Mm. Really? I just, I've really been on the Microsoft Teams bandwagon. It's so easy. It's all in one place. All of your files are there. You can send messages. It's beautiful. It, it's almost like Slack, except like sexier. Mm. What what's sexier than my Slack notifications going off <laughs> from the Nexus all your day long? Slack, yeah. Your what Slack notifications are the sexiest, but... I just feel like the amount of emails I get are overstimulating. They're overwhelming. And I miss stuff because I get like 60 emails a day. For me, I think it's more that I have so many emails yeah, to me constantly too. be checking. Yeah. But I do think that there's something to be said for, I mean, how else do we get our bills? You know, I don't want to check the mail. That feels way archaic. That's a good point. That's definitely been put to death. So some, somehow people have to charge me money. I mean, yeah, I hope they, don't, I, need I, they don't need to, but you know, if yeah. they would like. I think that you know, <laughs> I feel like email for personal use, like I, I, I still use it for bills and things like that, but I wouldn't use it to communicate with friends. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm ready for it to quite go away in that sense, but at yeah. work. I just wish there was some mm. way everything could be in one place for me. Yeah. That's like, a good point. It just stresses, I feel like it really stresses me out, and it's something I definitely struggled with this summer, is, like, getting everything on one calendar or on one, in one place in my brain, even. Because, mm-hmm. like, there's, like, 80 different places that I have to check things. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if things could all just be on email, I'd be down with it, I'd be fine with it, but they aren't, you right. know? <laughs> I mean, at work, I think that email is just annoying. Yeah. Because I can send a Slack message to someone saying, Hey, I, and, and for those who don't know Slack, it's like IMing. Um, we'll put that preference out there. Uh, instant messaging. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I can send a Slack to someone saying like, 
hey, I finished up this thing, take a look at it for me, you know, in two seconds. But if I'm sending that same message in an email to them, I have to say, yeah. hello, so-and-so. Yeah. Sign off. Hope your, hope your weekend was well. Yep. I just finished working on this thing. Would you let me know? Take a look at it. Thank you. Hope you have a nice rest of your day. Best, yeah. Melanie. Like That's like five extra minutes yeah. of my day or that I can get back and use for something else, you yeah. know? And I will say it's a little different for us especially because we're all working digitally now. Mm. Like, it, pandemic... Especially for us, we're all working. I think most of or some, most of us are working digitally, and we kind of have a digital workplace. I think it's interesting you're saying digital because the vernacular, virtual, remote, remote. Sorry, <laughs> uh, clearly I'm not a Gen Z. It felt like a digital camera. Yeah, we're booting you back to the millennials. I'm so sorry. Um. Let me. <laughs> uh, we're all working remote. And so I feel like there would be less reliance on email if I was in an office and I could go three doors down and be like, hey, I just did this spreadsheet thing, but you know? also I've noticed in offices, people do not want their workflow disrupted mm. by people knocking on their doors so much these days. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like when I was working in an office, people would always tell me, to just slack them even if they were hmm. sitting two desks down from me because then they could take a look at it when they were at a break and they wouldn't be distracted by you know from whatever they were working on by me being like hey yeah <laughs> I really liked how you were describing the framework of that article where you were like Gen Z is putting it to death because yeah. it's like why are, yeah. why are you guys against us like just evolving technologically to make things easier yeah like we're just nicer yeah guys. it is something to be said for just like progress yeah but yeah. I think that older people are stuck in their ways sometimes. Yeah. And I think email might be one of the things that is stuck around. Oh, Tony has a face. Um, I'm afraid to say it, but Do I like it. emails. <gasps> yeah, I don't know. I feel like for me... Tony is a grandma, putting that well, out there. Well, first of all, <laughs> yes, I am a grandmother in every single way besides my physical appearance. But I actually, I think part of the reason I like emails is that it is separate and I can keep track of things there. I, I agree with the, like, there's sort of this unnecessary level of formality in email, but at the same time, I do sort of enjoy having that tonal shift, mm. having it be a little bit more professional. I don't use it for friends or family communication, but personally, it feels a little weird to, like, send a text to my boss. Yeah. Like, I understand Slack, and I understand that it's, like, rapid communications and I think that's important and I think that's where it's going to like the workplace is going to evolve but I think that email is sort of I don't know I like it it's mm. sort of like a ritual for me mm. and I don't mind it I understand that it can be overwhelming for some people and that there's so many things to check like I have yeah. nine email accounts that I check yeah. every day but <laughs> at the same time I kind of yeah nine I think it may have been ten but I deleted one um, Good for you. She's she's on it. Yeah. She deleted one she's email. She got down. it. Yeah. I'm numb down. She's streamlining, if you maybe will. Maybe <laughs> I have that boomer energy that I enjoy it. But I think there's something to be said about that division between your professional and personal life. Yeah. But again, you could make the argument like Slack is that division. Right. Mm. I think for me, it's m the more challenging thing is just having so many different options as to how I'm going to communicate with someone. Yeah. Like, if it was just email, I don't think I would hate email. Exactly. It's more that I can Slack them, I can email them, I can text them, I can call them, I can Zoom them, I can, like... And, and, and each one has its own 
context. And, and I don't know which one is the right one right, sometimes. Right, Like, the pretext that comes with me deciding to slack you is yeah. completely different. It's such different exactly. energies. If, if mm-hmm. Melanie slacked me, it's a business thing. If Melanie texts me, I'm like, nah, it's, it's Melanie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's usually It's usually a gif. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, there's definitely, a, you're so right, there's a difference. Yeah. Mm. And I think that I don't need the anxiety that comes with having to make that decision when I'm already usually pretty anxious when, you know, chatting with a person from work or whatever. I think that's really interesting because especially because it is digital, it's just words coming across, Mm -hmm. everything else plays into how it's interpreted and how it's received. Mm -hmm. I think communication styles just in general are changing so much in terms of sort of like language, the sort of terms that you're writing in, the lingo of the youth. (laughs) And yeah, as you just said, like it's so different when I text somebody versus message them. And it sort of plays into this idea that Gen Z has so many choices, not just in technology, but just choices in general. And it's it can be overwhelming. So I mm. completely get that angle. Yeah. yeah. Choices as to which podcast you listen to. Ours. This Ours. one's number one. I'll do ASMR. Ours. <laughs> I don't know if our mics are good enough to pick that up. Email. Email. Yeah, it's good. She was kind of good at it. Yeah, I was kind of... Oh, I was just going to say, Tony's trying to sublimin- sublim- yep. subliminally yes, thank you. <laughs> message her opinion out there to everyone. Use email. Oh, no. That was, like, tantalizing. That was good. Yeah. I know. I'm well, mad. thank you, guys. Thanks for everyone listening to for putting up with our craziness. I like how we ended on email. Yeah. I know. As we like, should. Everything ends on email. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like we covered a lot. I'm really excited for this season of the podcast. I feel like we're going to get into some interesting topics. We're going to do some different formats. And, we're switching um, it up. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're Ooh. really excited. We're and, really excited. Um, if you guys haven't followed us on social media, go check out our sexy logo. It's new. We're going to be doing prizes Probably. Do not promise these things. <laughs> Don't promise them that. No promises. But You'll maybe. get our undying love and affection. There we go. Oh, we'll promise that. Yeah. Physical media, we can't promise that. <laughs> if I see you in person and you're following Hot Off the Pod, I'll give you a hug. Oh, I love that. I don't want to hug people. I, I, me. I'll give you a high five. <laughs> hug from Emily, high this five from Tony. I'll give you a formal Dude, shake. Dab you with direct <laughs> eye contact. Even in the ways that we're going to embrace the people who follow us, we have so many choices. Yeah. To end, too many. A little communication channel discourse. Oh. Oh. Mm. To end, I feel like we should each make up an email like sign off. Make up your worst mm. email ending. Oh. oh. Okay. I feel okay, like okay. it's really passive aggressive when people are like warm regards. <gasps> Because I always feel like I've messed up. I feel like they're usually like, you should have just reread that email and it would have told you your question. <laughs> Warm regards, Shelby. <laughs> My favorite email sign off is, I look forward to your response. Yeah, oh, I was going to say. Or like, hope to hear from you soon. Best, Emily, Tony. Oh. Okay, I'm going to go with a different route. I really despise when people write like best or thanks with a comma and they don't write their name after because they assume that their email signature just kind of oh covers the bases. I'm like, are you really so lazy and ha- are so busy that you can't write your name at the end of your email? Okay. Mine is how I end all of my emails, no matter who it's to. It's love, comma, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my Dear god. Chancellor Yang. Love Emily. Do you yeah. Love, my boss. Love Emily. Emily. <laughs> and with that, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're really excited. I can't say enough times how excited we are. We are. 
We're going to be coming back with another episode in August. Ooh. So catch us then. Yeah. And uh, happy, summer. happy summer. Happy everyone. summer. Happy summer.